might want to sit down for this. This is the new Star Spangled Banner. Let's go. So I'm actually glad that we finally get to talk, and unfortunately... For the listeners, we had planned to do this face-to-face up at the MGM for Burbiz, uh, which is scheduled to go off today, but we know the, the strangeness that is the, uh, the current, current world of coronavirus. Right. How are you holding up? You know what? Uh, my wife and I are doing great, actually. We're, we both have tons to do. We, uh, I'm, I'm busy as ever uh, with a variety of things, work and, and mental health and physical health and 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 pleasure reading and, and other side projects so we don't have children so we don't have that issue we have cousins our nephews and nieces okay. who are running around driving their parents crazy but we, <laughs> we don't have that yeah, yeah my my wife's home holds homeschooling right now and uh yeah, yeah. I, I feel bad for her um it's hard oh yeah oh yeah especially she's a teacher and she's like i could teach other kids but you know throw my kids <laughs> into it and there's there's a a comfort level with children and their parents that they don't have with their with their teachers so so having them do stuff is not always the easiest thing um so welcome to the 21 gun podcast it is the official podcast of irreverent warriors are you familiar with the reverend warriors at all just from what we discussed and then some of the stuff i've seen on social media okay and from talking talking with scott a little bit as well okay yeah yeah um have you have you seen any of the silkies hike have we gotten you on a silkies hike at all probably not since no yeah where where are you located out of uh now arlington virginia okay i know a lot of folks up there actually yeah so uh what what irreverent warriors is is basically a i guess you could call it a peer group right so uh veterans most of them combat veterans the overwhelming majority being marine combat veterans uh but you know all services are sprinkled in there and we get together and we do events the main event is the silky cycle where you put on your silky shorts and and you go on a eight to 12 mile ruck you're supposed to carry 22 pounds i'm sorry 22 kilograms of gear and do 22 kilometers for the you know 22 um veterans that kill themselves every day and to raise awareness number one and number two to bring people out of isolation and that tends to be the biggest thing is getting guys out of isolation. Maybe I saw in one of your interviews that running is out of the question for you due to your, your surgeries. Right. Is Would ruck, rucking be out of the question for you? No, rucking is fine. Okay. Uh, I've, done, I've done other events. When I lived up in Manhattan, I did several of those uh, similar, similar as yours and no problem. Swimming, okay. rucking, other things are fine. Uh, just running is not. You just uh, you just sowed your fate there, my friend. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be hounding you to go on the next one. We do one up in um, uh, we do one in D.C. every year. Uh, okay. So and and I'm personal friends with the guy who runs that. So we will yeah we'll make sure that or if anything that sounds right. Yeah, if anything, uh, we usually do like an inspirational talk at the beginning just to kind of buck up everyone. So, uh, you know, maybe we can even do that. Yeah, count me in. Awesome. I like to start off getting as far back into people's history as possible. Where did you grow up? Near here, actually, in Fairfax, Virginia. Grew up, grew up in Fairfax. Spent a couple of years in Europe. Uh, my father had a job with a computer company, uh, so we lived in Austria. 
of Vienna, Austria, and then London, England for a couple of years. But all of that was kindergarten through third grade, moved back to Fairfax in fourth grade, and, and then grew up in Fairfax. Okay. What do you remember yeah. about growing up in, or, or spending that time in Europe? Do you remember anything? Not, not a ton, really. Um, I remember playing sports. In England, particularly, we went to a boarding, well, we didn't board, but we went to a boarding school, but we didn't, we lived at home, but it was a boarding school. And kind of like um, Harry Potter, where they had the different houses and the different competitions. So that was alive and well. And so played a lot of sports, played rugby, soccer, swimming, uh, tennis, squash, um, and a very strict academic uh, environment as well. And then, so when I came to America, I should say back to America, but first time being in school in America, it was quite a culture shock. Um, where the teachers don't just call you by your last name and, you know, uh, you have a little bit more freedom and got into a food fight immediately. And, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but did, uh, did you develop an accent at all? Yeah, I had an accent. And you know, what's funny is um, our school uniform, if you were, I think, sixth grade and below or something, was shorts and then a, a shirt and tie and a blazer and year round. Um, and so when I came back to America and I, I talked to some friends later uh, who I went to high school with, who I'd gone to elementary school with, and like, yeah, we always wonder why you wore shorts all the time. It's like, <laughs> no one told me that I didn't have to. You know, I don't know where my mom was and didn't tell me not to do that. I just picture the, so uh, I, I, I picture the old school ACDC. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, we yeah. have we have some neighbors directly across the street. So I live down in Raleigh or, or just outside Raleigh, and we have a bunch of pharmaceutical okay. plants here. And one of them is – I don't remember the name off the top of my head. I can see it in my head, but I, uh, it's a Danish company. So we have a lot of Danes in our neighborhood. And same thing. Their children, when they first came, were probably – four and five years old and now they're six yeah. and seven and they speak perfect English. And I think it's just, yeah. as far as growing up and giving yourself, giving yourself a little bit of an edge over your peers. I mean, it has to, it has to just for the fact that, that a second language almost becomes your first. Now, I guess, you know, Great Britain didn't give you that second language. No, no that wasn't <laughs> helpful. But in college, um, I had a German minor and I spent one summer in Germany studying. That made a big difference. I also, Later in life, uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, and then later in the reserves, I um, I wanted I started studying Spanish, and I, I took some courses at community college, and went went down and lived with a family for three weeks in Argentina, and did an immersion program there. That's where I met my wife. She was there from California, and I was there from Virginia. But uh, just that short amount of time made a big difference in my proficiency and i'd like to get back to that i just haven't yeah. made time for it but it, it does uh, you know you see kids who grow up in that environment they're sponges and it, it mm -hmm. does make a big difference um in a lot of, in a lot of areas going forward just marketable down the road too i we, we don't really we don't appreciate it very much mm -hmm. in america i think yeah no because unfortunately especially you know i come from a I, I was a flyer in the air force and everywhere we went english is the the international language you know, yeah. even in, in Japan, yeah. everyone's speaking English. So yeah. we were never really forced to, to immerse ourselves into that. That's right. My neighbor, yeah. my other neighbor is uh, Argentine and um, her children both grew up here. She came over here to go to school and then and then immigrated here. And her her kids, which is it's kind of interesting to see. They have a, an American dad and an uh, Argentine mom. 
and they have a Spanish accent. They have that that almost oh, a, yeah, English as a cool. second language because they're right. both no. their languages are their first languages. So yeah, well that that's how they hear her song. So yeah, yeah. Um, more about your backstory. What did you have any family history to to go into service? A lot actually, although not really in the Marine Corps, but. I mean, going back to the, we can trace it back to really the Civil War. Some of our immigrants on my mom's side fought for the Union Army, uh, immigrated from Germany to Wisconsin and fought on the uh, northern side. But more recently than that, my mom's dad uh, was a colonel in the Army in the 10th Mountain Division, fought in Italy in World War II, same unit as Bob Dole. Um, oh, wow. Ended up yeah, ended up retiring there. Um, really really accomplished gentleman my uncle who's now 98 fought in world war ii he was an army um soldier and my dad was a staff sergeant in the air force and my brother retired from the air force as a colonel uh, Good. To put, yeah, to i knew i liked you yeah. <laughs> there you go um uh, so he's been around a lot uh, and then, and then I, I joined the Marines. A friend of my father is a good friend. Was a Vietnam uh, a Marine officer who fought in Vietnam and really encouraged me to join the Marines. Uh, towards the end of high school, I, he had two two sons of his own. I, I think he realized they weren't really joining, so he started working on me and wanted me to get in there. Uh, but he gave me Senator um, Senator Webb's book, Fields of Fire, which is about being able to year in Vietnam and really motivated me. I applied for ROTC scholarship and didn't get it. And I was in college and thought, well, uh, that that's it. Uh, but then I was I was in law school, working at the school gym, and a friend of mine came by and uh, we were talking. I said, "Where are you going?" He said, "I'm going to talk to the officer selection officer for the Marines." And I said. What are you talking about? We're 27. We're way too old to join the Marine Corps. And uh, he said, no, they have a session program for lawyers. And so I said, tell them I'll be down there and see them tomorrow. And I did and went down there. I think it was April. It's actually April 1st, uh, April, April Fool's Day. Uh, I filled out all the paperwork. Um, they like my they like my background. I was the chairman of the honor council there at law school. I was a captain of my rugby team and I done, you know, had a lot of good teamwork events, um, good background. And then that, this is leading up to the summer of my second year of law school. And they called me and I think it was in the middle of May or so and said, Hey, can you get to Quantico in a week? Um, we were able to fast track your, your package. And so I said, sure. I quit. Uh, I had a summer job lined up. I canceled that drove across country and went to Oscar Canada School in Quantico for the summer and then went back to law school, finished law school, took the bar exam and passed it, and then came into the Marine Corps as a lawyer and so uh, as a second lieutenant. Was it the the standard OCS? Because I know a lot of branches yeah. will have like an abridged version. Yeah, Marine Corps is different than the others. Uh, Marine Corps, everyone, everyone does the same thing. The only, the only difference is that in the Marine Corps, the pilots and lawyers come in knowing that's what they're going to do in, okay. in the Marine Corps. Uh, otherwise, everyone else is competing for what they're going to do and then they're, where they're going to their first duty assignment. Uh, so we, we skipped that part, but um, still came in as a second lieutenant, yeah, all the same training. Okay. Which I, th which I think is important. And it was, you know, once, uh, once, 
cut signage of Hoy, and made it very obvious why we do that because without that training, it couldn't have just snapped in and and um, been prepared. Sure, sure, yeah, and and I think that's that ethos of every Marina rifleman. I mean, it, it just makes sense right. with that sort of uh, with your your culture, you know, of being able to yeah. just pack up and go and and you know do that basic yeah. that basic. Uh, uh, I guess, fundamental job of being a, uh, in an infantry position. And the Air Force were, it's very, and I'm sure it's the same with the Army and maybe the Navy, is it's, it was very compartmentalized. So you, yeah. you know, not every airman is an airman, you know what I mean? It's, right. Uh, right. you go to the flying track, which is actually not, not as big as people would imagine because it's such a support-based yeah. uh, field. But yeah, you become more of a professional whatever it is your job is. And, and even though I was an officer, I didn't have any people below me. My job was to not get anyone killed or, or crash <laughs> anything. And, and that, you know, that kind of became important. And then down the road, I guess they, they then start filling uh, billets for, for leadership. So it's a different, it's a different approach. And, um, it and, and it's there for a reason, you know? Yep. You know, there, there's limited time and resources. So you had to figure out, you know, what's the reality of you actually using those weapons, you know, hopefully you're not, mm -hmm. you know, my brother came to, on a side note, my brother came to visit me uh, when I was at Camp Palace in California. And, you know, obviously the, our accommodations and our lifestyle is different in the Marines and the Air Force. And he came by our office and I was showing him around. We had just put down some new carpeting and painted it. We thought it looked, looked pretty nice. And he was like, Justin, no. We would literally we would tear this down and start over and build a nice new building. It would be so much better. Like, where is this and where is this? And I was like, you know what? We were going just fine. Thank you. That's so funny. <laughs> Different mentality. My my introduction to the world of the Air Force was was Randolph Air Force Base, and I'm looking around wow. like this looks like a five star resort. The grass is beautiful. <laughs> there's a golf course. There's pools. I mean, it, oh, it's, have you ever been down to Randolph? I haven't been to Randolph, I've been to other Air Force bases, and it sounds like you're describing all of them I've been to. <laughs> well, come on, there, there is some, there are some that are very, uh, I guess it all comes down. Do you want, uh, you brought up something that uh, I heard Matt Best give a, an interview, and he described, um, you said resources, and that, that is an important thing, because he was talking about what, what it was like being in the 75th uh, Ranger, um, is it battalion? Yeah, I think. Ranger regiment, regiment. Yeah, 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 and versus being a, a ranger tab guy in a in a uh, regular army unit, and he said it's all resources. You know, he had mm -hmm. the resources to have the high speed gear. You know, where right. where maybe, uh, and and I'm just pulling numbers out of my butt, but let's just say a, a typical soldier gets 500 rounds of of practice fire a year. He gets 10,000. So it's all about resources yeah. and where things are allocated. And yeah, yeah. Air, Air Force, we <laughs> we didn't have resources in that part. Right. Sometimes right. it didn't feel like we had resources in the flying part too, but <clears throat> <laughs> so, so what, what led you to decide to study law? Huh. Um, you know, in college I was, I had a double major of English and political science and a German minor. And so I was already leaning that way. And, you know, I, I went, I went back and I actually found my college application uh, copy of the essay and I, and I saw I had mentioned that down the road I would be interested in law school. I don't, I don't remember that looking back in the beginning of college I don't remember having that thought process but um, 
I don't know. Uh, I, I did take one of those tests when I was in elementary school about what you might, like a skill assessment, <laughs> what you might be good at. And judge was one of the things for me. So there you go. Um, I just remember, I do remember thinking um, I wanted to find a career where um, I could use my mind to make a difference and, and help, help change things for the better. And I just thought that would be a good way to go. And uh, I was actually, I went to school here in Virginia, James Madison University. I was living with some friends after college and started I was, um, a legal assistant at a law firm and signed up for a Kaplan class to study for the LSAT. Some friends decided they were wanted to move to Colorado. They said, you want to go? And I said, well, sure, I can find a job there and I can take the Kaplan, Kaplan class there as well. So I moved to Colorado. Um, did pretty well in the LSAT and actually stayed out there. I went to school at University of Denver uh, and, and overall liked it. I actually got a second law degree a few years ago. There's a, there's more than one. I didn't know this at the time. There's the basic JD, mm-hmm. but then there's an advanced law degree called LLM, which is like a master in laws. I did that at Georgetown. I was working for the FBI at the time. Um, and I went there at night the VA, to the VA's book rehab program. So I have a master in laws focusing on national security as well. It's, yeah. uh, it takes a certain analytical, I mean, people are definitely, my father-in-law is a lawyer. People are definitely designed to, to understand and to study law. Well, c- certainly, although I, I will say, and yeah, the, the LSAT is weird. The one section logic games, those get very complicated and hard to even understand. Um, but not everyone, not everyone goes to law school and who graduates is a smart person. I've met some whack jobs there as well. But uh, I guess for the most part, there's a certain discipline that's involved. And I think that's what carries over is, is that it does take commitment to get through three years and take all those tests and pass the bar and that kind of, that kind of thing. So um, I think that's why you see a lot of lawyers. It, it opens a lot of doors and because they – People recognize that whether you're the smartest guy in the room or not, you at least know how to do some research and get spun up on things and hopefully have, have also learned some skills around negotiating and getting to yes, uh, which are all business skills and personal skills, which um, help me out a lot. Uh, this leads, I guess, to an interesting question. Um, when I was when I was looking into law school, I, I spoke to a lot of lawyer friends and my father-in-law, and I got mixed reviews over whether yeah. you would recommend someone taking that route uh, yeah. because it's changed so much over the last thirty years. What, what's your recommendation for uh, maybe it's someone who's listening now that says, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the LSAT, I'm thinking about law school? Yeah, I do think you have to think long and hard. There's a lot of disgruntled lawyers out there. There's a lot of in the legal, now I never worked at a, a private law firm. I worked for the Marine Corps, then I worked for ICE. Um, I deployed, I got injured once I recovered. I worked for um, big federal agencies, Department of Justice. I worked on Capitol Hill, and then with the FBI uh, as a lawyer on a counterterrorism team. But um, there are a lot of folks who are lawyers who are just gruntled because it's, it is a lot of long hours, especially if you're in a firm. There is, there is a typically good pay, but pay only gets you so far in, in your quality of life, how happy you are. And so um, I, I have plenty of friends who are still practicing and enjoy it. I have plenty who are just like you said, who are on the opposite, the other side of the fence. So 
I would I would recommend it. I, it was always good to me. I never had a job I didn't like. Um, but I wouldn't I would not recommend it for someone to do on a whim or because they're not sure what they want to do. So this is just a way of pushing off what their next job is going to be. Or they saw a cool movie and thought that they could do that. You know, a few good men. Does, yeah, you saw a few good men, or you saw, uh, you know, Time to Kill, or, or you yeah. know, whatever. Um, it, it does take a lot of dedication, and there's going to be a lot of long hours, and, and maybe some frustration too. And I, I feel that. In some some practices of law, you're like I had a friend who did uh, family law, which involves a lot of divorce divorce work, and you know he had to send day in day out reviewing files of people's really personal personal sides of their family issues and fights and arguments, and you know the the it was not tragic, but it was a very unfortunate period of time for him because that's what he did and that's what he set his time on that's not good for you no, mentally no. you're setting your time and that and that kind of drudgery but uh you know so it, it's a mixed bag but i think um it's just you have to make an intelligent decision before you jump in because it is extensive and it does take a long time yeah yeah it, it's and i read and i don't want to crap on chiropractors here but i read a lot of chiropractors find themselves two years uh, into school and they realize that they don't really believe in what they're doing, but they're already a hundred thousand in debt. So it's like the point of no return. Uh, Yeah. That's a tough place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think we'll move on to your deployment over in Iraq. I think it's, it's a perfect example of the modern, um, I guess we could say warrior and what we saw back in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, especially back in 2006, it seemed like at least when I was there, there was no MOS or what we would call an AFSC that was safe from a role that could wind them up into combat. So, yeah. so how did you, as a Judd advocate, wind up in a civil affairs position, which for a lot of people who don't understand, that's, that's you're on the ground with civilians of indigenous areas, right? Of areas of Iraq, yeah. Afghanistan, or wherever else you find yourself. Yeah. Um, in, in that point in time, in the Marine Corps, Civil affairs is purely a reserve function. Now they've, they've changed it. And there's some active duty. It's, it's biggest in the army. They have a very robust program. Yeah, there. it's special I, special I, operations I, in the army. It's part of their special operations. Yeah, like with SIOS and the rest of special operations. Uh, not so in the Marine Corps. So I left active duty in 2004. Joined the reserves in next year, and the, the reserve unit I joined here in DC was called the Law of War Debt, and we taught almost all lawyers. And we taught deploying units the uh, laws of war and the Geneva Convention so they wouldn't be worried about what they could and could not do once they got in theater. We didn't want them to have apprehension if they were in a firefight or, or trying to react to a situation. They knew exactly what rules what, what of engagement meant and how to interpret them. Uh, but then in 2006, there was a call that came out um, for Marine, looking for Marine officers to deploy as civil affairs team leaders. And there's a local unit. Um, at Boeing Air Force Base, uh, which is now Joint Base Anacostia uh, Navy and Air Force, and for civil affairs team leaders. And so I hadn't deployed on active duty. I felt pretty bad about that. Uh, I was single at the time, and I thought, why not? You know, I, I should go. And so I, I volunteered for that deployment. So that we mobilized in June of 06 and trained here in the States. Um, 
until the end of August, I guess, and then and then deployed at the end of August, early September, to Kuwait and then into Iraq. Our headquarters was in Fallujah, but my team and I didn't spend much time there. We went out to Havania, uh, right across from TQ, and you know, halfway between Fallujah and Ramadi, we were attached to a Marine Infantry Battalion, three two, third battalion, second Marines, and our job was to support three two's efforts there. Of course, this was a hot, the this is before the surge of 07, so the insurgency was very powerful at the time. Where we were, it was a lot of things were being contested. We hit IEDs every day. We had troops in combat every day. We went out on a lot of patrols. It was hard to do just pure civil affairs, uh, as you said, trying to inject money into the local economy, trying to get pro uh, projects off the ground, whether it was cleaning or getting a water treatment plant up and running or paving roads or building schools. Hard to do that in such a hostile environment, but we were, we were making progress, but every day there was something going on. But, but the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Grossier, was strongly in civil affairs. Uh, we were pushing towards Ramadi. To, to, he had a huge area of responsibility. And so my team and I were very busy. I was very fortunate. I had a fantastic team, mostly NCOs, most of whom who had deployed to Iraq once already. Obviously, I never had, so I could lean on them heavily. And, and we were able to make good uh, or develop relationships with some Iraqi leaders to get some projects going, trying to make an influence, trying to get the men back to work so they weren't just sitting there on the sidelines angry and wringing their hands and trying to make a difference in the lives of the local people there uh, at the same time battling the insurgents. So it was no surprise that, you know, we'll get to it, but I was shot in the head by a sniper, but, it, you know, not because I was a civil affairs team leader, but because I was a Marine out on a patrol in the area where a sniper was. Yeah. Every talk, um, at least a lot of the people that I'm in contact with, I was I was there too in uh, 04, 05, and 06. We were flying okay. operations into TQ a lot. Uh, and it makes yeah. me wonder, it always makes me wonder if I could go back in time to see who was on our aircraft. I mean, because we were flying day and night, you know, just nonstop, yeah. nonstop in between air bases and whatever. And it, it just makes me wonder who I've crossed path with uh, oh, yeah. in the past. I, I, I got an email two years ago from an uh, Air Force major who was the major who was, when I was medevac out of Iraq to Landstuhl, his job on the plane was to look over all the men and women who were injured and, and were on that plane. He had kept a log of everyone uh, who he cared for, and he said that he periodically would Google their names just to see if he could ever find any information. He can't, you know, Google me, and there's a lot on there. And sure. uh, he contacted me, and I thought it was pretty incredible. I, and I had a chance to thank him for making sure we had a safe trip and, um, you know, keeping an eye over all of us. Uh, but like you said, you never, you never know who who you could have crossed paths with us without knowing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I ran into Marines who I hadn't seen in 10 years uh, over in Iraq uh, several times there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to, to ponder. It sounds like you working in civil affairs maybe had that same effect, like you were actually, uh, it was rewarding or you were actually getting something accomplished rather than getting to skirmishes and pulling back and skirmishes and pulling back. To some degree, uh, but it was it was very challenging. We had a we had a battle rhythm. I mean, we had a 
meeting every morning with the, with our colonel staff. I was on it. So we had at seven o'clock, we had that meeting and four or five times per week, I would go out with his team, his junk team and any number of different types of missions, whether it was trying to um, identify black market activities or get the regular market up and going. We saw a police station the day I was shot. That morning we saw a police station that had been shot up the night before by the insurgents. So the colonel wanted to talk to their police chief. We made payments to people who, who some of their family had been injured or, or killed in some sort of collateral damage incident or, or maybe their house was destroyed, things like that. So a variety of missions. Um, it was slow going on seeing the civil affairs projects manifest because it, it was hard to convince the Rockies to work with us because there was yeah. the uncertainty, at least where we were, the uncertainty was so powerful and they would be visited at night with very real death threats. Mm -hmm. And look, it's a long game. Everyone knew at some point we're leaving and, and then what? And so we, we just had some small successes, but the Colonel told me that um, later after I left, some of those projects developed and grew. and. I had friends who were deployed to the same area in, in Ramadi, for instance, just a couple years later, and they were able to walk around without their Kevlar's on, and, and it, it was a whole different experience for them. Some of them had been there around 2006 and completely different, but um, so I, I saw a little bit, but I, frankly, I was only there uh, six weeks before I was injured, so not, not really long enough to see a lot of change. Okay. Uh, a common theme that comes up, especially with those I interview, because I like to, well, I'll just say the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And uh, a, a lot of folks, and myself included, find themselves at one point, you know, with one direction. This is where I'm going. They don't really, at least I didn't really think about any other possible uh, routes of life to take. And then suddenly I'm without a job and I'm yeah. left out saying, what do I do next? Did you... Did you ever plan that your career could be taken away so quickly? And I guess actually reading about it, it wasn't as, as well, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, uh, I never, of course, we all contemplate that we might be killed. Uh, certainly, we prepare our wills and powers of attorney before we go. We get yeah. all our things uh, squared away. Um, I had a rental property that I owned, so I had to have someone be prepared to manage that, et cetera. But uh, I, I never imagined getting injured, uh, certainly to the degree where I was, and trying to come back from that. It was never anything we discussed. Probably still wasn't very much. Um, and I was in the reserves at that point. So it wasn't, there were a lot of younger guys in the hospital who, who were active duty and felt like their lives were over because they were seriously injured like I was and they thought their lives were over because they were not going to be able to stay in the Marine Corps or the Army anymore. I had already left the Marine Corps once by, by choice, left active duty and joined the reserves. So I wasn't concerned about that. And look, there's laws in place that, that ICE had to hold my job for me while I was going anyway. But um, I did, so I went back to the practice a lot. It took me a year until I was fully recovered and could go back and do that. But I, I chose to leave the practice of law in 2013 on my own terms. I retired from the Marine Corps as a Lieutenant Colonel, 
medically retired like you. And I also left my job at the FBI because I wanted to start my own business as a motivational seeker, which I still do and also got started to get very involved with veteran appointments. So uh, I wasn't in that position, but, you know, I, I was, um, I was concerned early on, not that there would be a job for me. Yes, maybe technically they had to hold my job, but I was very concerned. Could I really do that job? Could I still be a lawyer after being shot in the head? You know, what, what is life going to be like? Uh, you know, it wasn't all roses and, and, and rainbows and such. So um, I think a lot, a lot of men and women injured or not leaving the military are very concerned with that because right now still our transition services are, are in my opinion shameful to what they should be yeah. you know and and that that really hasn't changed and that's a lot what i spend my time working on to rectify that but it, it has to be happening at an institutional level and a lot of people i think are okay patting themselves on the back and saying yeah this is pretty good even though they would never put themselves they would never Put themselves in that position where they had to rely on the resources they're providing today's transition service numbers. Sure. Um, and, and before I go to the next part, I want to ask strictly as a as an interviewer, just because I'm curious. You know, when a story like yours, which is pretty incredible, uh, people naturally want to hear about it, right? And and I think they're generally interested in learning about how people heal, heal and overcome adversity and all that yeah. stuff. Maybe it gives them inspiration. I don't know. With that said, how do you feel about uh, telling your story with, and I, I guess I have lack of a better term, but without burning out from it, you know, um, do, do you ever take time <laughs> off? Do you ever take time off just to be Justin and not Justin, the guy who was shot in the head? Yeah. Like when these guys, these podcasters call me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no, uh, you're right. You know, it, it's, and this is something I've talked about with my wife. I look forward to the day where that's not a conversation I'm, ha I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm not, earning a living based on, on that. Um, and, I, and I'm moving in that, in that direction because I don't want to be defined by something that happened. Now it's 14 years. And sure. um, I ha I've had a very fortunate recovery. I've had amazing people around me. And, and I don't have to look too far to see many other people who are struggling a lot more than I ever was. Uh, veterans are not, you know, um, civilians too. And so I... I I'm trying to focus more now on talking about steps I'm taking in my life now to lead a, what it means to lead a healthy life and how to push past adversity, whatever that means, not how to survive a gunshot wound to the head, to the head but what work-life balance looks like, what, what a healthy day looks like. Um, in fact, I'm, I've written two books. Uh, one was leadership and one was about veteran appointment. I'm getting ready to start another book about it's an inspirational book where I'm featuring eight or nine or 10 different wounded warriors from Vietnam to today, men and women, all certain enlisted, who have gone through really hard times uh, and, and come out on the other end doing some incredible things uh, so the rest of America can kind of learn from our community where I'm, where I'm not focusing on myself, but my observations of some common denominators of what these men and women have found that works for them because uh, I'd rather I'd rather focus on other people and showcasing them than just talking about what worked for me. Sure. I mean, not that not that uh, being shot isn't important, but uh, the outcome, the the secondary effects, I think, are more yeah. important. Uh, the chain events that happened to you after you were shot, uh, I think, 
just by reading about it speaks volumes about the military itself, right? Let's say the selflessness, the teamwork, um, I guess you could say the warrior ethos, the core of what we're taught in, in basic training. Can you just take a second to take us back to the chain of events of the folks who who kept you alive, to kept you from being a KIA? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, really some incredible people. And, and so I thank you for asking because I, I love bragging about uh, these people who are so important to me. First and foremost, Corman Grant, 25 year old. I'll call him a kid, but he wasn't uh, a kid. You know, you know, what he did that day was amazing. And when he rolled me over, I was no longer breathing. He was able to form rescue breathing on me and cut out my throat and perform emergency tracheotomy so I wouldn't drown my own blood. Uh, he had never done that surgery on a human being before. Hmm. So the sniper, the sniper was still shooting. He had 65 pounds of protective armor on like we all did. It was over 100 degrees, so he was sweating like crazy. Um, and what this wasn't a hospital, inside a hospital. There was dirt and dust and rocks everywhere. But he did that. They were able to get me in a Humvee, which I mean, I think I weighed 215 pounds at a time with 65 pounds of protective armor. So then just getting me up in the vehicle was a challenge. Corporal Bueller, uh, drove 70 miles an hour down the major roads there to get me to TQ, which we knew had IEDs on it. So he put his own life on the line to, to get me there. Um, if we hit an IED going that fast, he would have died. He knew that. And then I, I had the opportunity also to talk to the doctors and nurses who operated on me 30 minutes later, a couple years ago. They invited me to speak at their Marine Corps birthday ball. They were part of the first medical battalion out of the Navy. I didn't know them. Uh, I didn't even put two and two together until I got there and they explained the connection. So I had a chance to say thank you. And the Navy captain wrote me a three page letter, letter what he remembered from that day and taking care of me despite they saw 3,500 patients while they're in Iraq that summer. So that was, he was incredible. Um, then the sacrifice, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, made the time when I went to Iraq. She had left the country to go pursue a PhD at Cambridge University, dropped out of that, put her lifelong dreams on hold to come be with me in the hospital, not knowing how long it would be, if I would even survive. Um, she was a cornerstone of my recovery. Then my, then my family was incredible. And, and then along the way, literally hundreds of, of nonprofit organizations, well-wishers, people helping with jobs. Um, and, and this is where I feel a little bit of remorse because I know I was treated differently in the hospital and it should not be this way. I was a major at the time. I know I was treated differently than some of the younger guys. I could hear it by the way that uh, they were talked to. Um, granted, they were also throwing their trays at people and, and, and acting, a, you know, Differently, I wasn't doing that, but they were in a lot of pain. They were they were going through some rough times, and it didn't seem right to me that rank would have anything to do in the hospital. Um, but sadly, I felt like it did a little bit, and so that's why I continued to. But certainly more so then, after I got better, spent a lot of time with junior troops and helping nonprofits to help junior troops in their in their early stages of recovery. But I had a lot of people reaching out and offering support, and I. Plus, I lived, I lived close. I lived in Falls Church, which is not very far from the Navy hospital. That's a lot different than a lot of guys in the hospital who um, their families live 
many states away. You know, maybe their family couldn't get there very easily. Dahlia, my girlfriend, uh, came there, and my best friend from law school's parents lived two miles away. She was able, she came to the hostel every single day, sometimes spent the night there. And the hostel is a very lonely place when people aren't around. And having someone there, you know, made a, an incredible difference, a, a fundamental difference, I think, in my recovery. And I don't think everyone, I know everyone didn't have that experience. That kind of plants the seeds for what kind of recovery you're going to have. Yes, it's it's part of me and who I am, but also the people around you. And it goes back, I think, to even when you talk about 22 veterans committing suicide, I think it goes back to who you were before you even joined the military and what, what your life was like before that, what challenges you, you may have had. Um, certainly a large number of folks who are taking their own lives never even deployed, so it's not it's not a deployment thing per se. And they're also a little bit older. So it's not just a young person's uh, rash uh, action. There's a, it's a complicated issue, but I wish the military was, I guess it's better now, it wasn't then about addressing PTSD and being open to PTSD. I have been the whole time, I've been outspoken about it. But I remember, I remember seeking an event at Quantico early on in my recovery at a command and staff college event, probably 2008, and people there, some mid to senior officers, just were like, nah, they didn't believe in it. And they were in charge of hundreds, if not thousands of troops. And it, 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 I don't know, it, it's, not, it's not fair uh, to put people in a position where they're going, they're truly struggling and to make them feel small for it and make them Here's a great example I saw yesterday to student veterans through a Zoom call to student veterans at a community college in Oklahoma. And we had a question and answer period again. And one of the questions was, where did you find the courage to seek counseling for PTSD? This is today. And, and you know, I mean, granted, I, got, I started seeking help in 2008, but she's asking about it now. And I explained this is a nationwide issue. It's not a military issue. There's a lot of myths around mental health. But the fact that it takes courage to seek this help, which should be the same as getting treatment for a broken arm or, or the common cold. And so um, I, I don't like the lack of progress we've made as a nation when it comes to empathy and compassion and, and trusting that people might be struggling because a lot are, um, whether you're deployed or not. Yeah. You may have been in a car accident or you may have fallen off a ladder. You may have been in a, I guarantee after coronavirus, like right now, there's a lot of people with PTSD. And when it's over, a lot of people that will need help that aren't going to get, aren't going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, I can tell you right now with certainty, there's a lot of crossover in the medical world, as you would see in the military world, where there's egos and there is yeah. an inflated self of, uh, inflated uh, sense of self where, you know, we, you know, we look at it as, as a weakness and I, and I wish it wasn't. There is such a disconnect and you kind of predicted where I was going to go with this because, um, <clears throat> The level of, of, of trauma and the level of, I guess, uh, physical effects that you can have with TPI, uh, TBI and PTSD are, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wide range of, of issues that people can have. Yeah. How did you, and maybe I read this wrong, did you go back to work 
less than a year after you were injured? Yeah, I was injured in October. You know, I actually was not an inpatient despite being shot in the head. I wasn't an inpatient very long. I got to Bethesda at the end of October um, and then was out a month later, believe it or not, uh, the very end of November. And the doctor, because there are so many Marines who, there was very limited bed space. You know, my room was designed for one person. There are two of us in there. Um, and I know in, after the Battle of Fallujah, there were even guys in the hallways uh, on cots. So it just wasn't well prepared. But the one thing when you're inpatient, they wake you up every four hours or they come in and check your vitals every four hours to make sure you're doing okay. And the doctor said, you know, you, if you go home, you'll, you'll, you'll sleep for 10 or 12 hours at a time. That, that's going to help your body recover really, really well. Um, so they showed Dahlia how to clean my mouth, which was the biggest thing. And they said, you can just come back in. Um, this is after I had a number of surgeries. You know, my first surgery is 19 hours long. And I had some other reconstructive surgeries. They said, you can just keep coming back in for surgeries, but you can um, you can go home and recover. So I did that, and it made a world of difference. I was on a feeding tube for months. So I poured a protein shake into a funnel, which stuck into my stomach. Um, but I would go in, have a major surgery, uh, and then actually I transferred over to Johns Hopkins University, which was fantastic. Have a major surgery, come back, recover for a couple of weeks, and then feel better. But I would sleep on the couch or sleep in bed, but for 10 or 12 hours at a time. I was on, of course, pain medication when that happened, but I would get off it immediately uh, or as fast as I could. I never had uh, dependency issues like I, I, some guys do. And it's, it's easy because it does make you feel really good. You're in a lot of pain from those surgeries. Uh, but I knew there was a lot of liability there. And mm -hmm. um, so my mobilization orders were up in June of 2007, at that point, I could go, I took a job in the Department of Justice, and it was actually the job I wanted when I left uh, the Marine Corps, where they had been a hiring freeze. And it was perfect because it was a high, highest level of appellate work. So it wasn't trial work at all. I didn't have to talk, which is great because I didn't have any teeth then. And so very, these are the bottom dentures I have. I don't have upper dentures yet. I'm still working on that. but. Um, I drooled a ton. There's no teeth there to stop the, the drool. So I had to have a towel around me all the time. And I just hated talking because it was hard to understand me. But in this appellate law, it was uh, in immigration work. So we were defending lower level cases in immigration court. So it was just basically determining why someone should or should not stay in America any longer. This is their last avenue of relief before they were uh, kicked out. And so it was just writing briefs at the circuit level. And so I could do that. And it was great to be going back to work, actually. And going back to work was a big part of my recovery. I was incredibly productive when I went back to work. That was in 2007. In 2007, 2008, so I worked there. I started drilling with the reserves again. I, was, I did telework. I just reviewed court martials. Uh, I could do it now and they're growing about, you know, virtually. They would send them to me, I'd review them, send them back. I also did the reserve command and staff college and did well there, finished that, and started an online business. So I, I sounds crazy, but I just wanted to do all these things and I felt like life could be over at any moment. You never know. I, I wanted to keep trying new things. And all that was just after one year of recovery. But 
You know, I did everything the doctor said. You know, I uh, did a fantastic job with my mouth. It was always clean and everything else. I did the physical therapy. I ended up going to PTSD counseling for 18 months, uh, weekly, one-on-one -on -one with a psychologist and, and stuck to the schedule the doctor prescribed on, on surgeries and, and therapy. Yeah. So I, I think the underlying the underlying theme there, which a lot of guys are lacking, is that purpose. Um, and that probably... Yeah. That probably healed your brain better than than many medications would. Uh, it was a big part of it. Yeah. Did you have any um, strange symptoms with TBI? I can certainly say that mm. I did. Oh well, only some memory issues. So I, even 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 now, I mean, I have a low rating by the VA for TBI, um, and I can't see how my left eye are very minimally. That's not because of TBI; it's because of scar tissue. That's a common symptom of TBI, but mine's because of scar tissue on my eye from when the bullet went through my head. Um, so I, ha I have some other issues um, related to it, but the TBI is—I don't remember my my rating twenty or thirty something like that, but. See, I can't remember it. So that's memory. But uh, it was incredible the fact the bullet went behind my ear, out my face, didn't hit my spinal column, didn't hit my brain stem. Um, and so uh, I went on to, you know, when I went to that program at Georgetown for advanced library, I graduated on the dean's list, which I had never done before. Uh, I never had like a really strong academic background, but you talk about a sense of purpose. Yeah. I really wanted to prove to myself I could do well there at a high level, and I wanted to take advantage of every minute in those classes. And so that's what really drove me. And I wanted to represent. Um, it was obvious I was there with an injury. I, wanted, I didn't want people to feel like, you know, I, I shouldn't, I didn't go in there. Yeah. Well that, and I think, you know, injury or not, I think that's something big that the military instills in people. If you allow it, you know, if you're a good troop, uh, is when you get out your sense of, um, uh, getting things done, you know, having that uh, sense of urgency and, and not yeah. wasting any time. It, oh, no, no, I, I agree. Just, I just on that note, there's so much that we learn in the military and I don't want anyone who's listening for, to confuse my opinion on what kind of job the, the DOD does with transition with the type of people who are leaving the military. I think the skills we all learn uh, are, are incredible. And I do believe the military returns men and women into society far better than than when they came in. And a lot of things that helped me succeed today are things I learned in the Marine Corps, even though I joined somewhat later in life. Um, I, I interviewed a guy named uh, Mike Leario. He was, um, uh, uh, I want to say he was in the 75th Ranger Room. It, it doesn't matter. He he had brought something up that has stuck with me. This is, He was one of the first interviews I did. And he said that you should always know, you know, whether you're a, a Airman Basic Day One or you're a 30-year Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, your career is going to end at some point. Right. <laughs> Should that be something that they instill in, in younger guys at day one at basic? Like, okay, guys, we're going to train you to do this, but keep in mind that... You know, you could fall off one of these uh, uh, obstacle right. things. And I mean, I had yeah. a good friend who fell off an obstacle course. I, I want to say it was maybe four weeks into basic and he's a disabled veteran. Oh, he man. shattered his hip. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's you never know. And that needs to be instilled in these guys. I um, I believe that the, I know there has been a movement to do that. And I believe that some some of that training does happen. Um, each service is different. I, and I believe that there is some mandatory training. I think there is a tiny bit early on. I'm not positive, but I, I do believe 
later as people's careers, especially if you're starting to reach the rank of gunnery sergeant or first sergeant, sergeant major, that in those classes that, that they have to take, there is some of that being taught for them and because they're going to be influencing a lot of younger troops as well. Um, I do recognize the friction um, for the service because their job is to, you don't see someone at Boeing training someone how to go do a good job at Lockheed Martin, you know, and the DOD's mentality, I think, is look, we have this person, whether it's for four years or 40, we need them to do a fantastic job on, on what they're doing for the military. We don't really have time to prepare them for for life after, after this. So I get that to a certain extent, but that doesn't that doesn't mean the transition part should be crappy. It doesn't mean look we invest a lot of money bringing people into the military, uh, recruiters and then training and then boot camp and schools and, and all that stuff. You know what we provide on the way out is a drop in the bucket. And where I work, um, we have a lot of these resources for veterans and. It's it's a shame we, we see that DOD is not embracing these these are kind of stuck in the older model, and, and I I just wish that they would treat it with the same urgency as it is on getting folks into the military. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I always like to wrap things up with a little bit of existentialism. Um, okay. So you're a survivor of something that obviously would have. It could have killed you very easily. How does that yeah. affect you day to day? Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think of on a on a very physical level. I still have a lot of issues. Like uh, I drool, I can't see perfectly clearly, I can't run. So every day, there's many reminders of it. Um, but you're talking about a, a more metaphysical level, yeah. I think, and so it's. I, I don't I don't focus on that I, uh, because that's that's a snapshot into my background and I maybe I'm I try to focus on lessons I've learned I talk with people about lessons I've learned about pushing past since the different university but again I don't want to be defined by that I I like thinking okay that was rough but look, I'm in a whole different level now. I'm in a whole different path. I'm influencing people and helping them have a better day. That wouldn't have happened, but for this, this you know, bumpy spot in my past. Um, and it's helped me appreciate what is really important. And it's a con, it's a work in progress. I, I, I wish I could say, okay, yeah, seven years ago, I figured it out. And now I have a perfect day every day. That's, that's not the case because I am a business owner. And so I do have challenges of managing my time, just like we all do. But um, I guess at, at the end of the day, the injury um, in a previous engagement, a previous conflict would have killed me for sure, a previous time. Uh, some incredible people saved me and I'm taking what I've learned to influence the lives of others. And um, I look forward to the day where it never comes up in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, job path. Uh, folks that are listening now, they're saying, well, you know, I'm going to be out in six months or whatever. Yeah. And they, they want to connect with you or learn more about what, what you guys offer. How can they find that? Yeah, th thank you. Our website is yourjobpath.com. Everything is free, always will be for 
service members, veterans, and their family members. And we have a million jobs on there uh, across the country. You can look for jobs based on your MOS, or if you want to do something completely differently, but any, any career fields, you create uh, by answering seven questions, you create your own customized transition dashboard. This is what we think DOD should provide so that every day when you check your app or check online, um, tells you what jobs are, are available, or you actually push notifications to you from our from our database based on your criteria. You know uh, there's a countdown clock for your security clearance if you still have one. You're notified of all the certifications and civilian credentials that you're entitled to, which the DOG does not provide you, but we show you where they are. And again, there's countdown clocks on some of those things. Um, we have 250 training courses that you can take to upskill. You can create a resume on there right away. Contacts to the VA to get your get your claim going and find out where some resources are around you and also to find out what your VAH is. If you're thinking about going to school and trying to decide in part based on your VAH at what school you <coughs> want to go to, that's all right there. We just finished um, rolling out and we have tons of resources for employers as well. I just finished uh, putting together, a, it's about a 10 hour series for e-learning for HR, HR professionals to learn more about the business case for hiring veterans. So we're getting ready to roll that out. Uh, so we have, we have a lot of great things going on there. Uh, and again, it's all free. It's yourjobpath.com. So whether you're thinking about getting out soon or you've been out for a while, there's resources there to help. Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's one of the biggest things that I've learned. I've I've been doing this podcast for a year now, and if okay. I have a saying is if you don't if you don't feel like there's a VSO out there for you, you're not looking. I mean, that's there's right. so many oh, yeah. people out there just <laughs> yeah, they're they're and this is just another one of those. And I think that's that's an incredible. I'm going to check it out. Um, yeah. I remember Please when do. when I got out, I had um, my my TS and. I, I don't, again, you know, this is 14 years ago. I don't remember which, which site I was on, but I got just slammed with emails because when people find out you, you have your clearance oh, yeah. and I had just re-upped right before I got out. So I had like, whatever it was, three years or two, two years. Two more years yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was just inundated with, with contracting offers it's and stuff like that. It's so, worth so, his and gold. Oh, it really, really so, is. Some companies will forego a college, college degree requirement if you have a TS toxic clearance because it's that valuable. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Be before I let you go, what is your favorite lawyer joke? <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you one joke and I'll tell you a quick kind of story. Um, one, the one joke is, and I've, I've heard them all, of course, but one is what's, what's brown and black and looks good on a lawyer, uh, a Rottweiler. And, uh, <laughs> but the funny joke, I, I often wrap up my, when I see the corporations, I, I use this to point out that it's important to keep a good sense of a sense of humor. And this is a true story. My dad came into the hospital not long after I was injured, and I was probably a week or two after being at Bethesda, so still hooked up to lots of machines and monitors, weren't sure how things are going to turn out. And remember, I didn't deploy as a lawyer. I was there with the infantry. That's important for this story. And he sat down next to me and looked me in the eye, had a serious look on his face, and he said, see, Justin, even in Iraq, they know who the lawyers are. <laughs> and I said, no, Dad, too soon. Wait, way too soon. Dark humor. Yeah. That's what that's what military humor <laughs> yeah. is all about. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we could laugh at that, you could laugh at anything you're going through. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, hey, listen, thanks for sharing your story. Um, as thanks always, you. as always, I have a list a mile long of things I want to ask and I only get to about 10 percent of it. So maybe sure. maybe down sure. the road we'll we'll get up again and hopefully uh, I'll see you. At, yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll see you. Yeah. Over up at the Burbas. Looks like they're going to do it in September. Exactly. Yeah. Our, yeah. The, the, we have the event tonight, the virtual event tonight. Yeah. The live one will be in September. All right. Colonel Constantine, thank you uh, for coming on and I appreciate it. No, thanks so much, Sully. Okay. Absolutely. Bye-bye.